0: Well, as we continue on with our series on worship, we come to the topic of the Lord's Supper. Now, if you're like me, who've grown up in the church or been in church most of your life, the Lord's Supper is a very familiar practice. And uh, I know for many of us, we, we tend to participate in it, but don't always take the time to study its purpose and its significance. And maybe you've participated in the Lord's Supper out of obedience to the Lord, but but you haven't dug deep enough into the subject to really um, grasp it well. So it's my goal today to discuss the subject in hopes to ground you in a deeper understanding of the ordinance. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Acts 2, verse 42, and I'll give you a moment for that. Acts 2, 42. And this is what the verse says. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, when believers began to come together as a church, they began to devote themselves to certain practices, which are common to us as well. They devoted themselves to the apostolic teaching, which for us is the study of the word of God. Uh, the fellowship, they devoted themselves to prayer. But you'll notice in this verse that they also devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. And this is another way of saying that they were observing the Lord's Supper. In other words, the Lord's Supper was, was central to the worship of the early church and was practiced frequently alongside the proclamation of the word. Now, it isn't a Roman Catholic thing to, to frequently observe it. In fact, it was Rome who would often deny the layperson frequent participation during the medieval period. The Protestants actually were the ones to recover the regular observance of it. And, and so that's, that's just an important uh, thing to highlight. Now, I want to cover a few points to ground us in a better understanding of this ordinance. And I'm going to do this in five points. Uh, The first point, and you'll see it in your handout, is the Lord's Supper as mentioned in scripture. That's the first point. The second point will be the Lord's Supper as a covenant meal. And the third point, the Lord's Supper as communion. The fourth point, the Lord's Supper as a memorial. And for the fifth point, the Lord's Supper as proclamation. So we're going to go through those points. Let's begin with the first point, the Lord's Supper as mentioned in scripture. So again, my goal for the first point is to simply lay out the scriptures that reference the Lord's Supper. And I want you to pay attention to the words or phrases used in in scripture to describe the Lord's Supper in each of these verses. Each description, I think, contributes to the overall meaning of the ordinance in a unique way. So I I wanna begin by looking at Matthew 26, verses 26 through 28. And I'll go ahead and read that. Pay attention to the wording. It says, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, "Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for you." Excuse me, which is poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Okay, and I, I want to read another verse, First Corinthians eleven, verses twenty-three to twenty-four, which says this: "For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread." And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So so from these verses, we see that Jesus gave thanks before the supper was observed. And so from these passages, and also um, in the Gospel of Mark as well, you'll see that the Lord's Supper involved the giving of thanks. And this is why the early Uh, post-apostolic church, identified it as the Eucharist. They would call it the Eucharist, which, uh, coming from the Greek word, um, it was the word Thanksgiving. In other words, this is a Thanksgiving meal. At the Lord's Supper, we are to express our thankfulness to God for the giving up of his son, right? For giving up Christ for the salvation of our souls. And so again, this is a Thanksgiving meal. So that's one observation that we can see from uh, passages that refer to the Lord's Supper. Let's look at the next set of verses. Turn with me to Acts 20, verse 7. I'll read it. It says, On the first day of the week, when we gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. So this verse here, and and I would also add um, Acts 2.42, which we read earlier, those verses show us that the term breaking of bread was was used to, to reference the observing of the Lord's Supper. It was another name for the Lord's Supper, the breaking of bread. And notice that Acts tells us how they would gather on the first day of the week, and Paul would also speak which commentators say was a kind of teaching or a kind of sermon. But nevertheless, the the Lord's Supper, or the breaking of bread, was observed during their gathering. And so you see that title, breaking of bread, as a reference to the Lord's Supper. Now let's look at another verse. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 10, 16. 1 Corinthians 10, 16. I'll read it. It says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So here we have the Lord's Supper referenced as a participation in the blood of Christ. Uh, The King James Version translates participation as communion, the word communion, which is why we sometimes call the Lord's Supper Communion. But but notice the way that Paul is speaking of participation or communion. Notice how he's speaking of it in a present tense. In other words, when we partake of the supper, it isn't merely a reflection of something from the past, right? It's not thinking back to the past, but but it's a present sharing or a present participation or a present communion with the Lord. See, this makes the Lord's Supper more than a memorial meal, but I'll deal more with that later on. Let's look at another verse. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 10. We'll be looking at verse 21. First Corinthians 10 21. And I'll read it. It says this. It says, You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. And so in this passage, the Lord's Supper is referred to as the cup of the Lord and also the table of the Lord. And so partaking of the cup and table of the Lord is essentially to commune with the Lord intimately. And, and Paul warns about being a drinker of the cup of demons while also drinking of the cup of the Lord, which is essentially to commune intimately with idols while also communing with the Lord at his table, which is a a blasphemous thing. And so Paul warns the church not to do that. And finally, I want us to look at 1 Corinthians 11, verse 20. And I'll read that. It says, When you come together... It is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. And so here in this verse, we see the ordinance being called the Lord's Supper. This is the most familiar name for it. Uh, But besides what it is called, the name indicates whose supper it is, right? This supper is the Lord's. And in the same way, Revelation 1.10 uses the term Kyriakos for the Lord's Day we see the same word being used for the Lord's Supper. It is a supper that specifically or uniquely belongs to Christ. And even though we can say that all suppers, in a sense, belong to Christ, since he is the Lord of all, the usage of the term is meant to communicate a distinct uh, aspect or a, a distinction from all other suppers. In other words, sure, everything belongs to the Lord. But when he calls it the Lord's Supper, it's something uniquely belonging to the Lord. And the same goes with the Lord's day. It's meant to be understood as unique among others. Um, And and with that said, uh, hopefully, just looking at these passages, um, these references would give us a more well-rounded understanding of how the Lord's Supper is to be understood. One thing I hope to show you as we move along is that in Scripture, the Lord's Supper is a meal for the Christian pilgrimage. And as uh, Herman Boving says, Christ is the host of the meal. It is Christ who instituted the supper. He is its administrator. And presiding ministers do so in the name of Christ. Let's move on to the second point the lord's supper as a covenant meal now in the gospels particularly in matthew and mark jesus when instituting the lord's supper he says this he says this is my blood of the covenant and you also see this in luke Uh, it's recorded that jesus said this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood and so these words were spoken as jesus was having a Passover meal with the disciples. That, that was the setting. Now, typically in the Jewish Passover meal, uh, food items ha- had a sy- symbolic significance and the food symbols were usually explained before partaking of the meal. And those attending the meal, they expected to, to hear symbolic explanations of the food items. And that was part of the standard Jewish liturgy. Now. In the Gospels, Jesus here is bringing about a newer symbolic explanation in connection to the Passover. He, he's using the symbols of bread and wine. And in these symbols, he declares to them that he is the new Passover lamb. And like, the, like in the original Passover, what was celebrated was God's wrath passing over Israel through the blood of a sacrificial lamb. And so in this new institution, Christ was giving us new covenant symbols for the new covenant realities, right? And like both covenant, old and new, participation in the meal required covenantal blood. Uh, Covenantal blood in the special presence of God. Let me uh, show you uh, a reference in the Old Testament about this requirement of covenantal blood. Uh, Exodus 24, verses 7 through 11. If you turn there, I'll go ahead and read it. Listen to the words in this passage. Again, it's Exodus 24, 7 through 11. And it says this, Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There, were, there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. And so, again, the, the blood of the covenant indicates entrance into covenantal relations with God. And <clears throat> this is true of the old covenant, and this is true of the new covenant, right? In the old, it was the blood of animal. And in the new, it is the blood of Christ. And this explains why Jesus, when taking the cup, says, this is my blood of the covenant. He's using the symbol of wine as the blood shed for his people. Christ's blood is the entrance to the new covenant. Now, what does all this mean practically? Well, this means that when we partake of the Lord's Supper in worship, it is a feast similar yet greater than the Passover. But it's a feast that is exclusively for the covenant people of God. This meal, as it did with Israel, is a marker of the people of God. We are marked as his people with this covenant meal. And just to give you a common example, um, think of a more common covenant like marriage, for example. Say a special meal between a husband and a wife who have covenanted with each other in marriage is is something special. And and we don't wanna adulterate it, right? It should be distinct and it should be special. Likewise, this meal is one that involves Christ and his bride, the church. Christ and those whom he has washed by his own blood. And for this reason, you'll notice that ministers fence the table Ministers plead with the congregation that if they are not in Christ, they should not partake of the Lord's Supper, lest they reap judgment upon themselves. And this, these ideas come from 1 Corinthians 10.21. Now, even though all are invited to come to Christ, a clear distinction should be made from those who are in and those who are out of the covenant. And so again, the Lord's Supper is a covenant meal. Let's move on to our third point, the Lord's Supper as communion. Now, as I mentioned earlier, Paul seems to communicate in 1 Corinthians 10 that the Lord's Supper is more than simply a command to do something in memory of Christ. See, when you look closely at 1 Corinthians 10:16, Paul is asking two questions. Both related to the Lord's Supper. Let's look carefully at 1 Corinthians 10:16 and I'll read it. It says this: The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Now the answer to both of these questions should be yes, absolutely. The cup of blessing is a participation in the blood of Christ. And yes, the bread that we break is a participation in the body of Christ. And again, the word participation is the same translated word for communing or sharing. Now, commentators have concluded that when you consider what Paul says in context of his letter to the Corinthians, as he addresses communion with demons and the need to abstain from idolatry, 1 Corinthians ten sixteen must be expressing a vertical top-down reality connected with the body and blood of Christ. In other words, it's not just some concept of a kind of sharing with one another horizontally, that makes the Lord's Supper a communion, although it is that, right? We, as brothers and sisters in Christ, partaking of the Lord's Supper, are communing with one another. But that's not the primary thing that is going on here. Um, the The first and most important thing in the communion in the lord's supper is the reality that we're communion we're communing with Christ himself it is a present communing with the body and blood of Christ and if Christ is no longer dying or dead which we know he is risen he is alive and he is exalted then this act of partaking or communing in the lord's supper in worship is an act of communing with the living and exalted Lord. This is a glorious truth. Now, going back to 1 Corinthians ten sixteen, what makes the cup of blessing a blessing in which we partake in is the fact that communing with the Lord Jesus never goes without blessing for ourselves. Communion with Christ includes communing with the present benefits procured by his broken body and shed blood. In other words, when you partake of the supper, you become sharers in the benefits of Christ's completed work on the cross. You're uh, you're edified, you're strengthened by it, and this is why the Lord's Supper is a means of grace. Now, just like the words spoken in the sermon is food for the soul, well, the eating of the bread and wine are nourishment for the soul as well. This is why Paul took the Lord's Supper very seriously. He, he knew that this ordinance instituted by the Lord Jesus was more than a memorial. He even compared it to the table of demons and how communion with, with, uh, with demons or communion, communion in an idolatrous way was more than just a ritual, right? Now, commentator H. Bedenhard in, uh, in the New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology and Exegesis. He says this, and I quote, To sit down at the table of the curios, which is the Lord, is to receive food from him, and through it, enter communion with him. Correspondingly, anyone who takes part in pagan sacrificial meals, which was common in the ancient times, Enters into communion with demons. The two activities are utterly incompatible. End quote. Now, this helps us to understand that even though Paul argues that there really aren't any other gods but the true God, the practice of communing with idols is to be understood as involving some sort of contact with demons, and therefore it's a form of gross idolatry. Now, with that said, it it, it kind of sheds light on how Paul understands what is experienced at the observance of the Lord's Supper as we drink and partake of of the table of the Lord. It is more than a time of remembrance, though it is that. It's a participation of the body and the blood of Christ. Now, You'll notice that in the same passage of uh, 1 Corinthians 10, moving forward to verse 18, Paul, speaking of Israel, says, are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? And so Paul's point seems to be that to eat the food that had been offered in sacrifice was to participate in the cultic act of the sacrifice. Now, eating wasn't the sacrifice itself. It was the receiving of the benefits of the sacrifice. And this is both True in the Old Covenant and in the New. And so like the old Passover meal, eating of the bread and cup makes you participants of the sacrifice offered for you in Christ once and for all. Making the benefits of the cross more and more real to your soul every time you partake. This is a a wonderful truth. Now, a few additional considerations. Um, I think it's important to make clear that believers already have communion with Christ through faith, right? However, because this is true, it doesn't stop us from feeding on Christ and seeking nourishment through the hearing of God's preached word. Likewise, we must look to the Lord's Supper as a means of grace for nourishment and for strengthening of our faith. I like this quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says, at this table, Jesus feeds us with his body and blood. And again, this is a spiritual feeding that is done by faith. A a good way to look at it is to view the supper as a kind of preaching of the gospel to the senses. The way you anticipate the preaching of the gospel through that audible exposition, you ought to anticipate the proclamation of the gospel in the bread and the cup. Imagine if you were deaf and blind. The broken bread and the wine would proclaim to the senses the Lord's sacrificial death, not because this is some creative form of communication, but because it is God's authorized means of communicating his grace to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is not a converting ordinance, but rather it's a sanctifying ordinance. And like the word of God and prayer, it is a means of grace through which sanctifying grace comes to us from Christ. Like the language that we use when we preach, the words that we use when we preach, they are empty words and clanging symbols unless the Spirit takes it and applies it to a person's soul. And likewise, there's nothing in bread and there's nothing in wine, and yet the Lord meets us in these ordinary means of grace. Which brings us to our fourth point. The Lord's Supper as a memorial. And when you look at the passage in the New Testament where the institution of the Lord's Supper is laid out most clearly, uh, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three, 23, Jesus repeats the instruction to do this in remembrance of me. What does that mean? Do this in remembrance of me. Well, we often think of doing something in remembrance of someone in their absence, So you often see in placards on walls or stickers on cars that say, in memory of Susan, or books dedicated in memory of mother, or someone who is gone or has passed away. But this is not what Jesus intended when he instituted the Lord's Supper. It was not an ordinance to remember his absence. On the contrary, It's a mode of his presence. And I like to parallel uh, the Lord's Supper with the Passover meal since it is essentially a fuller, more realized version of it. And we read in Exodus chapter 20, when the Passover meal was being established formally, the Lord says in uh, Exodus 20 verse 24, he says that in every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. Now, this is the idea that the Lord Jesus is taking up when he is instituting the Lord's Supper. He is instructing his people to take the supper in remembrance of him, and he will come to them. He will come to us and bless us. Now, we know that corporally, he is physically at the right hand of the Father in heaven. However, the Lord has promised us, uh, specifically in Matthew 28, that he is with us always, even to the end of the world. The way he maintains his presence among us is through the Holy Spirit, and specifically through the means of grace, especially at his table on his day. Now, it is profound, yet it's a wonderful blessing to know that Jesus is with us as we feast with him, in our observance of the Lord's Supper in worship. Now with that said, let's move on to the final point, the Lord's Supper as proclamation. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-six, 26, we read Paul saying the following, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And in my opinion, this is one of the most powerful and even hair-raising aspects of the observance of the Lord's Supper. Often when um, when I'm administering the supper during the worship service, I'm filled with emotion as I look out into the congregation from the pulpit and I see the present reality of the church together proclaiming the Lord's death in this act of eating bread and, and drinking from the cup. Now throughout the scriptures and throughout the history of worship of the people of God you see this act of proclaiming the wondrous deeds of the Lord Israel did this in their worship and in the same way this concept carries over into into the worship of new testament believers biblical worship captures this idea that we owe God a witness to his mercy and his mighty acts of salvation not only to each other But to the world, the Lord's Supper is the church's proclamation to the world of the cross of Christ. Now, when we celebrate it, we proclaim the Lord's death, which is a proclamation of the victory of the cross of Christ. This witness to the world not only strengthens the faith of the body, but I think also inspires the faith of the doubtful. The very act of participating in the sacred feast is a profession of faith to the whole world. And God promises that this proclamation will never die out. There will always be one until he returns. And therefore, when you take the Lord's Supper today and you eat and and you drink, be marveled at the Lord's faithfulness that for 2,000 years, The message of the cross is still powerfully proclaimed through this ordinance as it testifies generation after generation of Christ crucified. And praise God for this wonderful ordinance. Now, as we conclude, I'm aware that there's much to be said about the Lord's Supper. There are important things to be considered, questions about How to prepare yourself for partaking in the Lord's Supper? Um, How should we examine ourselves, as Paul calls us to do? What does Paul mean in 1 Corinthians 11 when he warns believers not to partake of the Supper in an unworthy manner? Um, Questions about children and should they be partaking in the Supper? These are all very important questions. However, um, As I mentioned earlier, uh, we will have a whole class dedicated to Q and A in order to answer any of these questions, and so I would encourage you to write down your questions and place them in the box so that we could carefully answer them next week. One of the questions we would like to answer is the question of the specific elements used in the Lord's Supper. Is it bread? What kind of bread? Is it wine or something else? The elders desire to be faithful to the scriptures and to be faithful to God. And and one of the things that we have seen through much study and faithful exegesis of scripture, and even throughout the church's history, with the exception of only the last, say, 200 years, was that the fruit of the vine referenced in scripture was always understood to be fermented, fermented and fermented for a reason." And this has been the practice of the church from the very beginning. And The elders hope to uh, address some of these biblical and historical considerations that we have been discussing for a very long time. Uh, We desire to move to an approach that allows for those with convictions that wine be used and desire to partake with wine can do so, while also those who have hesitations against partaking with wine, to continue to partake with grape juice. Again, it will take time to work out details of how and when we would do so, and we desire to be transparent with you all. And We know that some will have questions about this, and therefore we want to address them as best as we can. So uh, we look forward to uh, that opportunity to, to be able to address some of these things. Well, with that said, I hope that this class has been a help for you in uh, better understanding biblical worship as a whole. And again, if you have any questions, feel free to write them down, put them in the box, and we look forward to thinking through them and answering them as best as we can. Now, with that said, let me go ahead and close out in prayer. Well, our Father, we thank you that you have given us these means of grace, especially the Lord's Supper, to strengthen our faith and to allow us to commune with you. We ask that your spirit would cause us to observe them in a manner that is worthy and pleasing to you. We thank you for Christ and for the grace that we have in him. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you all.